We, as black folks, are no strangers to being exploited. For centuries, our innovations, our art, and our very bodies have been commodified and squeezed dry of anything that can be spun into capital. And it ain't slowed down. It's only been digitized. And it seems that anything goes in the age of the internet and social media. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Whether we realize it or not, brands are fixtures in our internet lives. Every time we hop on Facebook, or Twitter, Instagram, or any other social platform, we're running into brands who use insidious tactics to get into our pockets. They'll do things like create a CGI influencer who can perform blackness. They'll steal our online creativity and they'll align themselves as black allies when they just want black dollars. It's digital anti-blackness and it's something we gotta talk about as we live more and more of our lives on the internet. To go in depth about this, we're talking with Dr. Francesca Sobande. Francesca is a senior lecturer in digital media studies at the School of Journalism, Media, and Culture at Cardiff University. She's a researcher and a writer. She's got several books, including The Digital Lives of Black Women in Britain. And she's published work about wokewashing, digital representations of black people, and how brands misuse, exploit, and commercialize notions like black social justice activism. You can catch her talking about digital remix culture, race, gender, celebrity, and black diasporic media. We're gonna get into all that a little later. Francesca took time to sit with us all the way from across the pond in the UK, but the time difference could not stop an incredible conversation from happening, so stay tuned. Ray Charles could tell the white reporter's face was red from embarrassment. The music legend was there to answer questions, not cause controversy. So when the reporter got messy, Charles got real. Reporter Bob Costas made a crucial mistake in his 1999 interview with Ray Charles. His intent was to bait Charles into making a controversial statement by saying, Elvis, the king of stealing black folks' music, was not only talented, but was exceptionally so. After hearing that, Charles had to break down the truth. He bluntly let Costas know that there were too many artists far greater than Elvis. He schooled him on Elvis's white privilege in the industry by telling Costas that, yes, Elvis was popular. He had the girl swooning. But so did Nat King Cole. The difference? Cole was black. He was punished in Alabama for being popular with the girls, which was nothing to play about in a state known for regularly lynching black people. But that wasn't all Ray Charles had to say. He had to remind Costas of Willie Mae Thornton. Willie Mae Thornton was a black woman whose original 1953 song, Hound Dog, hit number one and stayed there for seven weeks. That was three years before Presley's debut. His early success quickly made him a household name. And all it took was standing on the back of Black creativity, innovation, and genius.
Whether it's our music, hairstyle, slang, or viral dance sensations, it's clear that popular culture continues to thrive off of plagiarizing, culturally appropriating, and discounting Black art. Just because time has moved forward doesn't mean their theft has stopped. Now that we're in the digital age, it's only become more disturbing. Behind phones and computers, hidden within social media, faceless people and whole brands are stealing from us and digitally manipulating our Blackness, all to gain from our image and labor. Francesca, what does Black liberation look like to you? What Black liberation looks like to me is the first word that comes to mind is freedom, and I mean that in the broadest sense. So the freedom for people to be exactly who they are on their own terms, freedom in terms of free time, having the, the time, having the resources to pursue people's dreams, and people having the, the time and resources to simply be, to enjoy themselves, to find moments of pleasure and to be with the people they love. And I'd also say for me, when I think about Black liberation, I'm always thinking about liberation for all. So I think sometimes in terms of how the media frames Black liberationist organising or questions to do with activism, there is maybe a focus on the experiences of a select few without really considering the experiences of those who are most marginalised or most oppressed. And I think Black liberation has to be for everybody. And that means pursuing goals that ultimately result in a better world for all. I appreciate that. So tell me, how does your work help us get towards a vision of Black liberation that you shared? So I'd like to think that my work contributes to that in, in various different ways, but I'm also well aware of the incredible work that so many other people are doing. But I say that one of the ways I consider Black liberationist goals or one of the ways I reflect on the relationship between activism, between expressions of agency, between media and creativity, is looking at how Black digital experiences can be at the forefront of incredible forms of collectiveness, consciousness raising, community building and collaborating and solidarity formation as well. But at the same time, that involves being critically aware of those moments when organisations, commercial entities try to repackage and try to essentially reframe Black liberationist work in ways that's ultimately about them pursuing profit. And this means that my work has involved critically analysing various different adverts, various different pieces of content, some of the moments we've seen when brands have tried to reposition themselves in different ways, participate in conversations to do with Black activism when they've never even uttered the words Black activism before. And I guess at the core of my work is always a concern with questions to do with identity inequality and ideology. So I'd like to think that my writing contributes to critical understandings of the fraught relationship between consumer culture, between activism, between the lives of Black people. And I'd like to think that it does that in a way that is really re reflecting the innovative work of Black people and is appreciative of the innovative work of Black people, but is also shining a light on the different risks and challenges that they might navigate in the process of doing that work. Okay, so 
Let's look at the history of some of these issues that you brought up. How far back can you date some of the early instances of this spectacularization? Yeah, so I'd say even though a lot of my work deals with the digital, this is definitely something that's been around a lot longer before then. So I think if we look at the history of media, whether that is film, whether that's TV, print, we look at issues to do with politics and representation. There are so many examples of the emergence of consumer culture as we know it and what is essentially the oppression of black people. So oftentimes when I'm writing about this, I'm thinking about how at various different points in history, and this is an ongoing process, I would never suggest otherwise, that black people have been treated as mere commodities or a means to commercial ends. And that means that although what we're seeing right now includes activity on social media platforms or activity on online content sharing sites, that form of spectacularization where images of black people and their work is essentially exoticized and objectified by these different commercial organizations organizations and that itself is not new but how it looks is definitely shaped by how digital culture has developed what is the through line it seems to be this spectacularization but what else in addition to that and then what does the digital world we're in now what does that allow for that wasn't allowed for in the past in terms of this exploitation i think What the digital allows for or what the digital has changed includes, if we take a really clear example, a platform like TikTok, where we've seen on the one hand, black content creators producing incredibly impactful content and material that goes viral, material that is picked up in a whole host of different media and cultural outlets. On the one hand, we see the visibility of this work, but on the other, we see various content creators, various um, white and non-black content creators trying to replicate that material in ways that ultimately benefits them. And I use that example because I think when we're dealing with the digital, we've seen sometimes when black people have been able to create and share content with some degree of autonomy and maybe in a way that involves bypassing some of the more traditional media industry gatekeepers. But that also means that that content is often at risk of being essentially appropriated and and misused by others who see the impact the content has and essentially trying to try to pass it off as their own and I think all this connects to the focus on clickbait culture that is associated with a lot of digital technology the focus on speed and viral culture and what that then means for the speed at which people will try to co-opt the content of black people so And this might be getting ahead a little bit, but when I hear this type of sort of co-opting, especially in creative production, do you see any opportunity there? Does your work dive into any opportunity for Black folks to reclaim or to brand our stuff in a different way? Sure. So I'd say NFTs isn't an area I've, I've ventured into so much, but I would say one of the main things I've been thinking about to do with these opportunities to approach stuff differently is the power involved in boundaries. And I guess what I mean by that is sometimes when we think about and speak about Black digital culture, there's a strong focus on what feels very public and very visible, but there's always so many other examples of Black digital creativity, Black digital 
friendship that involve people very strategically thinking about what they choose to share, when, how, and who they choose to share that with. And I guess what I mean here is the significant role of, say, closed digital spaces, the significant role of platforms in slow-paced community building, collective organising, and what it means to think really carefully about what an individual or group chooses to conceal or, or what an individual or group chooses to reveal. And I'd also say on that note, because I'm conscious of your last question, you were asking about, you know, what, what are some of the key components of these forms of spectacularization? And here I would say that I'm often thinking about content where there might be an image of a black person or an allusion um, to a black person, whether that's with the use of music, whether that's with the use of um, vernacular, but in ways that are so clear Clearly detached from the reality of black people's experiences and in ways that treats them as an object to sell or promote something as opposed to an individual and a creator in their own right. Can you give some examples? You mentioned either directly images or illusions or the music like in, and let us explore a little bit more. How do these things appear on these platforms? Sure. So I think one of many ways is how we see, for example, white and non-black content creators responding to or picking up on different forms of black creative expressions. So whether that is how black music is essentially positioned, trivialized, is repackaged in ways that platform these creators and becomes, I guess, what we would refer to possibly as a form of sonic blackness, where black people's work is part of the content, it's 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 present, but black people aren't, and black people aren't credited. I think some of the other many different ways we see this take shape as well is the rise of computer-generated imagery, CGI influencers, which is something I've been interested in for a of years now, particularly because a lot of these CGI influencers, which you know aren't real people, even though they might be voiced by them, a lot of these CGI influencers are clearly racialized as black. And I think there is something there that sends a very strong message about the marketability of ideas of and allusions to blackness, but without black people being behind the creative process or certainly without them being at the center of it or without black people being part of it, period. Let's dig into that. What is a CGI influencer? So a CGI influencer, also sometimes referred to as a virtual influencer, looks like an influencer. They've got a digital platform, whether it's a profile on Instagram, whether that's on Instagram, whether that's on various platforms. There are images of them. Some of their posts might involve brand partnerships. And this influencer is essentially computer generated. So what that means is even though the influencer in some cases might be voiced by a real person. There are real people who have been involved in its creation and there might even be real people who've been hired so that their um, movement and their embodiment, their physical appearance has been observed to make the CGI influencer look lifelike. But ultimately, this CGI influencer is not a real person. And what I've noticed as part of the research I've been doing on this for a number of years is that within that CGI influencer space, quite a few of these influencers are clearly racialized as black. And although it's difficult to determine exactly who is behind the creation and development of them, 
from the material that has been made available, it is fairly apparent that relatively rarely is a black person leading the way on the development of this. And it is it's clear to me, certainly, that the development of some of these CGI influencers involves tapping into what I would regard as stereotypes, tokenistic portrayals, and essentially what a scholar such as Bell Hooks might refer to as this commodification of otherness in ways that, again, hark back to how we have seen brands try to really portray themselves as inclusive or portray themselves as diverse, but in ways that ultimately objectify Black people and certainly doesn't involve meaningfully engaging with them and the fullness of who they are. You mentioned the CGI influencers, allusions to, uh, to blackness by non-black content creators. What are the implications for black folks as it relates to this? So I think one of the implications, and I know the work of scholars and writers such as um, Lauren Michelle Jackson has really delved into this. One of the implications is that we see black people and blackness again, treated as, you know, just something that's marketable, treated as a, a way for individuals to position themselves in proximity to a certain coolness, to an aesthetic that they think might result in increased visibility for them and then potentially profitable opportunities. But alongside that, I think that the implications of this include the erasure of the work of Black people. We've seen time and time again, you know, the, the origins of a piece of content whether that is a viral piece of music, whether that is a dance routine being actively concealed as part of how others will try to make use of the work of black people to benefit themselves. And I think alongside this, the implications are, you know, potentially devastating in terms of people's career prospects. And what I mean by that is, whether it's a white content creator who finds themselves in television because they've ripped off, um, you know, a piece of content produced by a black person, or whether it's an individual who actually has developed this new, fantastic, exciting piece of work that is then repackaged by a brand that claims it for themselves. People are missing out on opportunities for themselves and they're missing out on the chance to perhaps pursue different aspirations of theirs which could benefit them, but ultimately are often benefiting brands or non-black content creators. So essentially, it sounds like what's happened in the past and continues to happen specifically with like the music industry. We know the stories of Elvis and, you know, taking all these songs from black artists. And I think the rock and roll industry in general, just taking that and repackaging it in this white package, putting it out and, you know, benefiting in multiples and dividends forever and ever and black folks getting nothing. So this seems like an extension of that. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I'd agree with you there. It's exactly that. I think it might, in certain cases, look slightly different because of the different affordances of platforms, but it's absolutely part of an ongoing process where we think about how, you know, whether it's the economy, whether it's different marketplace activities, anything that involves commerce and the exchange of money, how it's always been entangled with issues to do with racism, issues to do with anti-blackness specifically. And that's why for me, when we're thinking about this, I always come back to the fact that racial capitalism is at its core. Um, and, and that means I always have a question around What's going on here? You know, why are these CGI influencers black? And beyond the surface, um, who's behind the creation of them? What politics underpins that? If I'm understanding correctly, the motivating factor 
for these creations seems to be financial. They're not necessarily contributing anything to black culture, but more extracting it and, and making money off of it. So what I would say, to be fair, is I think this this space has expanded quite rapidly in recent years. So I couldn't say that in every case that's what's happening, but certainly in the majority of cases that I focused on as part of my research, the emphasis is on paid opportunities. So there are brand partnerships. These CGI influencers sometimes are depicted at events on the red carpet. And although they do sometimes comment on social and political issues or sometimes partner with not-for-profit organizations, it does seem to be that ultimately these CGI influencers are meant to be doing work that is similar to that of a model, that of a celebrity. They are personalities. And what that means is they're always tied to potentially profit-making activities even if they're sometimes also positioned as taking a stance on various social and political issues. Mm. Interesting. So do you have any information on what leads a brand to partner with a CGI influencer over a real being, specifically as it relates to, to Black folks? Sure. So the, the information I'd have to say here, this this would be just based on, on my, my own critical analysis in this area, as opposed to having heard from a brand who has explicitly stated this, but I think one of the key potential benefits brands see is that they have a lot of control over these CGI influencers. So whether that is ensuring that they do not speak on a certain issue, whether that is ensuring that they definitely promote a product in the way that they want, these CGI influencers are very moldable, they're very malleable. So I feel that they can almost be anything that a brand wants them to be in a way that differs to some of the, the, the risks brands might feel are at play when they're dealing with real people. And I think also there's the novelty that surrounds the CGI influencer space. There's a newness attached to it because consumer culture is always looking for the next thing that's going to be flavor of the month. I think some brands feel that there is something exciting about CGI influencers that offers them a chance to stand out in often very crowded markets. And some of these look pretty incredible. Some of these, mm. like, especially when they're merged in with real human images. I remember seeing them for the first time a couple years ago. So I can absolutely understand the novelty of it. I guess it's like the system of white supremacy will continue to find ways to use blackness mm -hmm. in its interest in terms of uh, it's another form of servitude in a sense, right? If we create, we have this cultural production, cultural ways of being, and they're able to control it by creating these CGI characters and not having any accountability to the community. That's pretty incredible on their part, pretty devious though. So <laughs> when I'm thinking <laughs> of what the future implications are, and that, you know, this is all speculation, but thinking of like the metaverse and as more people get online and are using avatars, like have you thought about like what iterations of this could look like in the future if there's not anything done to significantly challenge it? Yeah, I think one of the questions that first comes to mind for me is a question around 
what work and labour conditions might black people navigate in relation to all of this. And what I mean by that is, as we see these CGI influencers being increasingly developed, popping up in different ways, I'm conscious there are times when brands or individuals might hire black people in a freelance capacity, whether that is so they can observe them to try and make the CGI influencer look lifelike, or offer them the chance to voice the CGI influencer on certain occasions. But I I am always thinking what work and labour conditions might black people be faced with in that sort of setting. We might see times when brands or organisations try and hire black people in a freelance capacity to essentially use them as a shield to prevent them from facing critique in the same way that they maybe once did. And although we might see more black people within this space and potentially we'll see more black people developing all of these CGI influencers themselves, my question will still always be who is benefiting from this the most, especially if these CGI influencers are then made use of by brands that we know have never had the interests of black people in mind. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you think of more celebrities and influencers are becoming more and more outspoken, being able to just create this blank slate, this black image this is pretty, pretty incredible. Okay. So most of these companies that are creating these now, at least as far as you know, are these um, ad agencies or digital marketing firms? Like who's behind a lot of these? So I'm conscious that, you know, I'm based in the UK and the bulk of my knowledge in this area certainly focuses on the UK and the US, but I know this is a burgeoning space. So there's a lot out there that I don't know the ins and outs about myself, but there does certainly seem to be an agency component. So whether that is a digital and creative or digital modeling agency of some sort, but I'm also, you know, I can imagine that there might be individuals who aren't part of a full team who with various digital so technological skills are able to put this sort of material and this content together. So I'd also add here again, particularly a few years ago, it was difficult to really find out a lot about exactly who was behind what. And at this point, I would say, although there's more information out there, there can still be an opaqueness, whether that is intentional or otherwise on the part of creators, which means it really can be difficult to get a proper sense of who's leading the way on this specific CGI influencer or in if there are individuals who are part of a wider team, how many of them are on a permanent contract as opposed to a freelance one? And um, who's most likely to be paid the most and why? So there's a lot of ambiguity there. I think that is, it potentially presents a lot of ethical issues and challenges that those who are part of that space will need to continue to address. You mentioned black labor specifically as it relates to producing these images. What are your thoughts on implications for the broader community and the existence of these images and how they're used? So I'd say it's tricky, but a part of me is tempted to, I suppose, reiterate the points that I've been making, which is the problems that these images present, the ways that they reflect a much longer history of forms of anti-blackness and oppression. But I also here would want to say that I think at the same time, what's clear is black people are constantly doing so many different things themselves in their own way, on their own terms, which means that although the impact of what we're speaking about is 
is it definitely presents many issues. I wouldn't want a focus on that to detract from the reality that black people are doing so many incredible things that in a way, what we're talking about right now, for me anyway, could never eclipse all of what black people are doing in terms of digital technology, in terms of online content creation, in terms of navigating digital spaces with an awareness of what they can benefit from and also what they might have to 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 deal with as a part as a result of that and I guess what I mean is I'm always intrigued about the ways that black people will play with will remix will subvert the intended use of a digital platform or the intended message associated with a piece of content so whether that is you know finding a way to sort of talk back to what these CGI influencers are and what they represent and creating something entirely different which means that these CGI influencers become a thing of the past I guess I'm I'm talking through and focusing on the fact that for all the problems created by what we've been speaking about here and um, black people will always find a way to be to be doing something entirely different and the impact of what black people are doing online will always far surpass and um, any of this other stuff got it so it's almost they can't keep up they just have to follow mm -hmm. and we're mm -hmm. going to be ahead of the curve because of mm -hmm. how we been utilizing these platforms it seems that you're also describing it as a form of resistance as well am i understanding that yeah i guess i guess i'm thinking about that but i'm also just thinking about the fact that that some of this stuff some of these examples and um, might seem pretty irrelevant to to many black people in their lives and what i mean by that is i think definitely some of these times when images, representations of black people are spectacularized online. It's very clearly by individuals or organizations targeting an audience that does not consist of black people. So creating content to appease a white gaze or creating depictions that are perceived as palatable to a broad audience. And because of that, I think some of what we're speaking about might not necessarily be on the radar of all black people, might not necessarily be on the radar of most black people. And that's because in some ways, and um, despite the efforts of individuals to, to paint these examples as as relevant, as, as appealing, um, they, they kind of can be meaningless to some people. And they're always gonna struggle to essentially, as we're speaking about now, keep up with what's actually happening. And certainly, can't replicate what they feel they might be able to. And yeah, I can definitely see how, I guess some of the specific ways this manifests may not be upfront and apparent in terms of how it applies to day-to-day -day lives of you know most folks. But I see this as also connected to this broader effort that I think is always taking place in media, the system, system of white supremacy and those that are acting in favor of it in media production are able to really take in what we create, what they see from us, and then spit it back to us. They sell it back to us. They sell literal merchandise or images of ourselves, what we should be. And I think of things like the Jeffersons. Are you familiar with the Jeffersons? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And so it's like knowing that that was those images of blackness. I think Sanford and Son, too, that was like created with writing rooms that were white. And this seems to happen in Hollywood media, like these productions that are largely from white creation and their interpretation of blackness fed back to black folks. And then we are embracing that as if it is something that is actually 100% our culture and taking up, you know, those ideas and values, I think. So seeing these images, especially on formats like Instagram and TikTok, where 
there's that level of authenticity that's so key there. I think it's another way of them, yes, making money, but also controlling another form of controlling how we see ourselves and what we what we value. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it makes me think of Bell Hooks' work on the oppositional gaze and what it means to 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 look back from a, a point of view that might involve a degree of resistance, but to also actively turn away. And um, because as you said, I, I do think all of this is connecting to issues to do with power and issues to do with control. I feel that these forms of spectacularized and branded and um, digital representations of blackness, because let's be real, it's very rare that some of these representations are actually depicting black people. You know, we're talking about CGI influencers, which is why I think making that distinction between allusions to blackness and depicting black people is important. Um, but yeah, I think this, this all of what we're speaking about is, it's ultimately about control, it's about agency, and it's about issues to do with power and politics. And here, I'm reminded of the work of incredible scholars and writers such as Keisha Bruce, who's written recently and done research recently to do with black diasporic intimacy, thinking about the role of photographs in people's lives, thinking about the different ways that black people connect and experience intimacy online. And I feel that work such as that of Keisha's is getting to the heart of what it really means to experience digital spaces and digital technology as black people away from that spectacularizing voyeuristic gaze, which is the gaze that's ultimately always going to be at the root of all these different types of spectacularization that we have been speaking about. Wow. Okay. So in addition to what we've been speaking about with the CGI and those type of representations. I know your work expands beyond that into the ways that blackness is spectacularized when it comes to our pain. Can we pivot there? Speak on what you've written about in terms of, of that element. Yeah, so I think, I guess, just picking up what you saying about like pivoting, alongside speaking about this, I've been thinking a lot more lately about angst and, and whether it is you know, news organisations or whether it is white influencers who are saying that they want to support Black Lives Matter. So many different images, videos, pieces of content are constantly circulating in ways that ultimately can contribute to the re-traumatisation of Black people. And I think there can be a very fine line between what people think or feel is about awareness raising or sharing information and what is actually perpetuating experiences of pain and harm by very flippantly circulating depictions of black people experiencing violence and black people even being murdered. And I've been reflecting on how what I view as being black angst can be uh, an, an emotion or an experience or a feeling that black people deal with, which can involve essentially trying to take care of themselves and each other um, in ways that organisations are constantly trying to dismiss and overlook. And what I mean by that is the concerns of black people who express, you know, absolute frustration at how images of black people experiencing harm are, are shared so quickly and are shared um, with such disregard, the, the angst that is experienced in relation to that is, is so often dismissed by people who say, well, actually, 
if we don't have visible evidence of someone facing this, and um, change isn't going to happen. That focus on visibility, I think, is just reflective of the fact that we're still at a point where people won't believe black people and won't take black people at their word. So are essentially saying you're going to have to continue to record and share incredibly harmful, painful experiences in order for people to even entertain the prospect of what you're saying um, being being the truth. Um, I'm sorry to bring that back to black ants because I'm conscious of, I'm saying a lot of different words all at once. I guess I've been thinking about how black ants can be this animating force in the lives of black people um, and how black ants can come, come from a place of ultimately love where black people are thinking how do we take care of ourselves and each other and how do we ensure that our concerns um, don't don't just stay with us but result in forms of change and action that can bring about a better world. So is it an element of uh, us taking more control over it than we may currently have? Am I following correctly? Yeah, I guess it's an element of there being more control over whether it is the creation of sharing of content that is, is currently available, but also not accepting when people will try to suggest that the sharing of something that is harmful um, is the only way for change to be pursued. I guess I'm thinking about black angst as an emotion or an expression um, which holds space for both the importance of counter-narratives and the importance of highlighting the realities of Black people's lives, but saying that this needs to be done in a way which takes care of Black people's physical and mental well-being. And that means that we can't be in a in a place where content is constantly shared and circulating in ways that's actually perpetuating pain as opposed to helping black people to pursue forms of healing and justice. That's not me at all dismissing the fact that we are still sadly in a world where black people often have to record and share what has happened to them in order to try and pursue forms of healing and justice. Um, instead, it's me saying that, I guess, this expression of black angst says, well, alongside that, what can we do to mitigate the potential ongoing nature of harm that is an outcome of the, the creation and sharing of that that recording or that that material who benefits from the creation and sharing of that material in the way that exists now i think that question the answer to that question depends on a whole host of different factors including where that material is shared how how it's framed how it's narrativized where it ends up i think you know who benefits can range from unfortunately media organizations getting more clicks getting you know, a, a wider audience to individuals actually being able to essentially correct a narrative, correct a false narrative that has been pushed out by an institution or has been pushed out by mainstream media. I suppose what's tricky is I do think that ultimately there is often always going to be some element of harm that black people still face as a result of the creation and sharing of that content. And there's such a lack of societal regard and concern for the well-being of, of black people, both in terms of what they might be dealing with in content that, that records them, but then also the, the aftermath of that content being shared in the way that it's shared. So who benefits? I think that can really, really vary. And... I feel unfortunately, ultimately, who benefits? It isn't always black people. And even if it is black people, 
the creation and sharing of that content often comes at such a huge, huge cost um, that society does very little of anything to really address. So I, I see like around well, the past couple of years around like Black History Month, certain retailers will have their little pro-Black section, like T-shirts promoting Blackness or um, Black business section. You know, if they know that we're going through certain things collectively, certain types of trauma, then they're making these little T-shirts. Does this relate to that in any way? How are you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, I just say, I think there's been so much of that. And certainly, you know, I'm conscious in in both the US and, and the UK, everything is impacted by the specific geocultural setting and, and the history that is, is associated with those particular places. But I also know those histories are entangled. But in the UK anyway, there's just been so many examples of brands trying to, well, brands trying to brand black activism and brands trying to, to brand racial justice. And it is, in some ways it's unsurprising, in others it's not for the reasons we've already discussed. But I think something that is very fascinating for me in the UK and um, in the devolved nations in the UK, so thinking here specifically about Scotland and thinking a lot also about Wales, the, the devolved nations in the UK have dealt with, or I should say not dealt with issues to do with racism and anti-blackness in some very particular ways, which are shaped by the fact that those devolved nations have always, I guess, positioned themselves as having been colonised um, by England in the UK. So I say all this, it might seem irrelevant right now, but it, I say all that because in those particular places, you have this weird mixture of discussions to do with colonization, really focusing on countries within the UK, as opposed to, for example, the experiences of black people or people from different parts of the world that the UK um, colonized. And what that then means is that if you're trying to attempt meaningful conversation to do with the, the specifics of what it means to be black in those places, it is incredibly difficult because the conversation is very quickly derailed by a focus on people talking about the nation as, as having been colonised rather than addressing anything to do with race in any meaningful way. And what that means then is those little t-shirts that you see popping up in these particular places are especially, especially reflective of just the lack of any clear and detailed consideration for black history in, in these places oftentimes. To say that there isn't brilliant work that is happening led by black people, and that's not to say that there aren't any black people in those places either, because I think that's a myth that's often peddled and as, as part of different different organisations and discourse to do with blackness in the UK. There are black people in, in the devolved nations in Scotland and Wales. Um, but despite the brilliant work that is going on, these nations are very much in a place where they position themselves as an exception. So they're very much framed as less racist than. And what that then means is when you do see that merchandise popping up, when you do see brands trying to tap into the conversation, um, the way that manifests is just so incredibly backwards that I think it probably looks and feels pretty different to what, what's even happening in the US. So as we get closer to the end, I'd like to 
to tie this all together. How, as a community, can we make the push towards moving away from, from blackness as a spectacle or from being made a spectacle? So here I'd say one of the many ways is, I think I'm gonna go with a bit of alliteration here. So I'd say um, retreating, refusal, and I would also say recognizing. And what I mean by that is recognizing that there are so many different ways that liberationist goals can be pursued that move beyond an emphasis on visibility and move beyond an emphasis on surface level representation politics. And when I say recognising, I'm not saying it as though there are people who recognise this and, and whose work is absolutely rooted in an understanding of this. There definitely are. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for the work of, of those people. Refusal, I'd say, you know, refusing to to share and make visible things that so clearly are by and for Black people. I think often, unfortunately, whether it's an individual, whether it's an organisation, people will be so quick to try and extract, to try and um, repackage and to try and replicate the ideas, the knowledge, the creativity, the, the joy of Black people in ways that unfortunately sometimes hinge on a good faith response to a request. And I think this this is where boundaries have have played such an important role in black liberationist organizing for well for decades, forever. Um, and, and what that means is, you know, the refusal to participate in certain conversations and, and places and spaces, the refusal to open the door to everybody at all times. That last point, um, so I said refusal, recognising, and I think I said retreating, I might have thrown in a different word now, but I guess what I mean there is the power of turning away and turning inwards, so the, the power of coming together in ways that don't involve any form of recording or documenting, the power of focusing on the everyday, pursuing forms of self-expression and pleasure that don't require, you know, digital technology, don't involve any form of mediation. Yeah, I guess it's all about work that happens on Black people's terms and also in their own time too. I think the emphasis on speed and virality that is a part of digital culture can really, really feed into various forms of burnout that unfortunately we know black people face so often. The term burnout isn't even a helpful one because I think that's detached from the reality that anti-blackness and intersecting oppression is, is what causes the physical harms and the, the mental harms that black people face. But yeah, I guess I'd just say work that happens by black people on their own terms and, and in their in their own time at their own pace is is the way forward and that work doesn't always need to be visible and it definitely doesn't need to be legible to everyone all right and just like that we're at the end of this episode of black history year this podcast is produced by push black the nation's largest nonprofit black media company at push black we agree with marcus garvey when he said a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter, and your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we realize we have to take matters into our own hands. 
and you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Graciela Mayo-Latizzi, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Marcel Hutchins and Sydney Smith. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. Peace.